I know we mentioned this earlier, but if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand real quick. We'd love to get one into your hands. Um, not only so you can follow along with us, but that's our gift to you. Uh, so Will or um, uh, John or someone can grab one for you if you need one. But go ahead and turn this morning to Genesis chapter 45. If you're visiting with us today, we've been in Genesis for a little over a year now. And we're in the home stretch. We're getting to the last few chapters of this amazing book that really lays a foundation, not just for the Pentateuch, the first five books, not even just for the Old Testament, but a book that lays the foundation for all of Scripture and really all of life. I'm convinced you don't know who God is, and you can't understand what Jesus accomplished, and you really won't understand how we are to live if you don't know how it all started back in the book of Genesis. So, but again, today we are nearing the end of our journey through Genesis. We'll be picking up about halfway through chapter 45. Uh, let me ask you this question before we jump into our text this morning. Have you ever had to wait a long time for something? Maybe some of you kids in the room. I know we've got a lot of kids with us today. Um, have you ever had to wait a long time, like for your birthday? When's your birthday, Paul? March. And you had to wait for all that, didn't you? And it was a lot to look forward to, wasn't it? It's hard to wait. Maybe you've had to wait for a birthday party. How many of you guys are excited for school to start? Are you waiting for school? See, we've got some young hands in here. They still love school. That's good. Maybe you've had to wait for a long time. Maybe some of you older kids. I know we've got some people who aren't kids. You're young adults now. You waited for maybe your high school graduation day. That was a big day to look forward to, wasn't it? Kind of a big accomplishment. Uh, maybe some of you who are older, older kids, maybe you were waiting for your wedding day. I know that for me, the four and a half months of engagement seemed like longer than four and a half months. Maybe some of you waited to close on that first house or for that first child to come. Maybe for some of you who are the oldest kids in the room uh, had to wait for that retirement day. I remember counting down uh, how many days it would be for some of you in this room until you would be done working. We all know what it's like to wait. Waiting is a necessary part of life. But when waiting is met by disappointment, it can be heartbreaking. I think some of us have tasted that as well, the things waited for that didn't come like we thought they would. But on the other hand, if you do get what you were long hoping for, the relief of finally seeing that thing that you were waiting for, it brings so much joy, doesn't it? The birthday party or the graduation or the first house or the, maybe the vacation that you were looking forward to. Well, in the story of Genesis, there's a lot of waiting, isn't there? And part of that waiting involves trusting, trusting that God will do what he said he would do. The story of Genesis really focuses on the covenant promises God made to Abraham. You remember all the way back in chapter 12, God had promised Abraham that he would bless him, that he would make of him a great nation, that he would give him this land and provide blessing not just to him, but through him to all the families of the earth. That is a huge promise. And the rest of the book of Genesis from chapter 12 on is shaped by those promises, by those covenant promises. There's really three kinds of covenant emphasis we see. There's the receiving of God's promise. That's where God speaks and he says, I will do this. And that's really the foundation of our faith, isn't it? It's the word of God that we receive. That's the foundation of our faith. But there's not just the receiving of God's promise. Like we've talked about, there's the waiting for God's promise. And that's not necessarily the foundation of our faith. That's the testing of our faith, isn't it? Sometimes we see in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we see that things are moving forward. We're getting one step closer to the fulfillment of what God said. But other times, it almost seems impossible that Abraham and Sarah, these 
very old people could have children, that Isaac could settle in the land, that a great nation would come through Jacob's descendants. Sometimes, because there's no children, the promise seems far off. Sometimes there's great danger, for instance, to the life of Isaac. Sometimes you see the moral fabric of the covenant family unraveling. Jacob looks at his sons and they're a mess. They're falling apart, waiting on God's promise as a test of faith. But Genesis isn't all just the giving of promises and the waiting on promises. As we come to the end, we also see the fulfillment of God's promises, where the waiting is finally met by reward, the reward for their faith. As we've seen before, Abraham does in his old age get a son, doesn't he? Isaac, laughter, joy. We see that Isaac does eventually settle in the land and has peace with his neighbors. We see that Jacob, here in the final chapters of Genesis, sees his family preserved from famine. And not only preserved, but he sees his family purified and prospered. We've been focusing on the life of Joseph over the last several weeks. And the life of Joseph really contains all of these elements. The promises given, promises waited for, and promises finally realized. And we see this at the personal level as he has these two dreams. Dreams that all of his brothers, as it were, were sheaves of wheat that bowed down to his sheaf. And another dream, a twin dream, where the sun, moon, and the stars, 11 of them signifying all his brothers and his parents as well, bowed down to him. But that dream didn't come to pass right away. There was many long years of waiting as a slave and a prisoner in Egypt. But then finally comes the fulfillment as Joseph is exalted to the administration of Pharaoh and he's reunited with his family. And it's in the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams that we actually see the larger picture covenant purposes of God moving forward. And this is all history. These are all things that happened. But what do we learn from this history? What do we learn as we see the lives and the careers of these men and the promises of God fulfilled? What we see in all of it is the faithfulness of our God. And not just the faithfulness of our God to do what he said he would do, but his remarkable power and his providence as he guides all things together, even the most unlikely, even the things that seemed to counteract his plans, he brings all of it forward and works it together for good. It is, as we've said time and time and again, it is his providence that ensures the fulfillment of his promises. Joseph realized this, didn't he? Joseph realized this. And as the story of Joseph comes to a conclusion, there's a very valuable lesson that I want to bring out for us this morning, and it's this, that the past fulfillment of God's promises strengthens faith in future fulfillment. The fulfillment of God's promises in the past strengthens our faith in the promises for the future. That's very important for you and for me, isn't it? Because there's things that God has promised us that he's fulfilled. There's also things that haven't yet come to pass. How can we hold on to those things that are not yet real in our lives, those things that have not yet come to pass? We've got to look to who our God is and realize what he has done. I think we see that fleshed out here in Joseph and in Jacob as this remarkable story of Joseph in Egypt begins to come to a conclusion. As the story of Joseph comes to this conclusion, we see this lesson. I think that's why God puts this story here. And I want us to look at it and to learn this because we see God's faithfulness in the many layers of fulfillment. So we're going to try to cover a big chunk of Scripture today, the second half of chapter 45, all of 46, and all of 47. So bear with me, buckle up. We're going to fly through this 
But in all of this, I want you to look for something. I want you to look for how God's promises are fulfilled. Look for the faithfulness of God. We see the promises kept, first of all, in the reunion of the family. The reunion of the family. The fulfillment of Joseph's dream. Remember that dream he had over 20 years before uh, this scene that we are witnessing today. That dream required reunion with his family. How can his brothers and, and his family bow down before him if they're not there, right? If they're far away, if Jacob still thinks that he's dead, torn to pieces by wild animals as his sons had tried to trick him into thinking. Well, last week we saw that Joseph had finally revealed himself to his brothers. They had come to Egypt in a time of famine to buy grain, and he had sent them home and tested them. And on their second time, as they had come back again, Joseph finally reveals himself to them, but he assures them that he's not interested in revenge. He knows that God sent him to Egypt so that he could rescue them from the famine. And he excitedly told them, hey, I want you to go home. Tell my father I'm alive. Tell him that I'm the second in command in all of Egypt and tell him to come because I want to take care of you all. So he invites them to come so that he can provide for them and be reunited. And in God's grace, Joseph isn't the only one who thinks it's a great idea for Joseph's family to come to Egypt. We see this picking up in verse 16 of chapter 45. After Joseph reveals himself and invites his brothers to come, look in verse 16, it says, When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours." We see here the invitation of Pharaoh. It's not just Joseph's idea for Jacob and his descendants to come. Pharaoh himself invites them. Joseph's desire is matched by Pharaoh's decree. He shows great hospitality and great generosity to those who are in need during the time of famine. This is interesting because later, the descendants of Jacob, the children of Israel, would become slaves. They would become oppressed in the land of Egypt. But it didn't start that way. They started off as honored guests. Pharaoh sends these carts to help carry the aging Jacob and the young ones and all of their things. He doesn't want anything to delay them or hinder them from coming. What a merciful word to these brothers who felt so guilty for what they had done to Joseph. What a, what a merciful pronouncement to a family that was facing starvation. And imagine how this news would have landed on Jacob, this father who for over 20 years has suffered with a broken heart after losing his most beloved son. We see here again also the the warmth and the compassion of Joseph. In verse 21, it says the sons of Israel did so. They followed Pharaoh's instructions. They get ready to head home. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. 
So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. Joseph gives them, it's interesting, clothes and money for the journey. Now, if you've been reading this story, you'll see that there's a bit of irony here, isn't there? I mean, the brothers had stripped him of his cloak so many years before, right? They, they had torn it up and smeared it with the blood of a goat to try to make Jacob think that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. And what did they get out of this deal? 20 shekels of silver. We see here the heart of forgiveness and the love that Joseph has for his brothers as he warmly blesses them with all of these provisions. But he also gives them not just stuff. He gives them some instruction. See what he tells them? He says, do not quarrel on the way, in verse 24. You see, the news that they brought Jacob was good news, wasn't it? Your son Joseph is alive. He invites you to come. He's going to take care of us. We're going to make it through this famine. But this good news would bring to light their ancient crime. Joseph is alive? I thought you told me he was dead. How did he end up in Egypt? For Joseph's brothers, there is potentially an opportunity here for accusation and for blame because their ancient sin was going to come to light. Joseph had already seen them bickering over this. They didn't realize that he could understand their language in chapter 42. And they said, oh no, God is getting us because they were feeling so guilty. And they said, God has found out our guilt. And remember Reuben said, I told you, I told you not to harm the lad. God is visiting his blood upon us. Joseph didn't want them to argue. He said, it's all going to be okay He wants them to be at peace with each other. So they come and they deliver this invitation from Joseph, this invitation from Pharaoh to their father. Verse 26, after arriving, they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt and his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to him to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. When Jacob receives this news, he is stunned. He's more than speechless. It says that he is literally numb inside. He doesn't know what to think. He doesn't know what to feel. He doesn't know what to say. This is a very different report than the ones that his sons had previously brought him. Every time they come, it seems to be bad news. Joseph is dead. We have provision, but this man in Pharaoh kept Sim- this man in Egypt kept Simeon in custody and demands that you send Benjamin if we're going to get more grain and if he'll be set free. I mean, it's always bad news when Jacob's sons show up, but they bring this good news, and his heart is revived. He's eventually convinced as he sees all the provisions. He says, I will go and see him before I die. But Joseph and Pharaoh aren't the only ones calling Jacob to go to Egypt. Look at the divine invitation that Jacob receives starting in chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. 
Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him. They arrive at Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is about 26 miles from Hebron, the place where Jacob had been dwelling. Beersheba is at the south border of Canaan. This is kind of the last stop before the long trek across the desert. Beersheba had also been the home base for Jacob's father, Isaac. And so it was fitting that he stops to render sacrifice to the God of his fathers. Now, why did he stop and offer sacrifice? I think there's a couple reasons. I mean, obviously, Jacob is grateful. He's thankful that his son is alive and there's provision for them. They're going to survive the famine. Uh, But I think he also probably wants God's protection on the journey. I mean, taking your children and your livestock. He's an old man who has to be carried in the cart in order to make it himself. I mean, to go across the desert is no small undertaking. But I think there's a deeper reason why Jacob stops and he seeks the face of God before this journey. You see, without God's blessing, such a trip amounted to unbelief. Unbelief in what? Unbelief in the promise to give them the land of Canaan. Jacob is mindful of God's call, God's command to dwell in the land that he would give them. It's interesting, if you remember back in chapter 26, there had been a different famine. And God had told Isaac not to go down to Egypt to seek provision, to escape the pressure of the famine. So I think Jacob is likely wondering, is it really God's will? For me to leave this place that God has called me to, this place God has promised to give me, is it God's will for me to go? And then for the first time since he was a young man at Bethel in the wilderness, God speaks to Jacob. And just as God affirmed the covenant promises to Jacob when he saw that vision of the stairway to heaven, so we see those same promises of God's presence and the promise of those covenant blessings emphasized once again. This is the last time by the way, that God is recorded as speaking to his people until over 400 years later when God would speak to a man named Moses at a burning bush. And that the fact that God's final word to his people for centuries is an affirmation of his covenant promises, that is not an insignificant thing. Notice what God says to Jacob. This is important. I, want, I know we're going fast, but I want to give special attention to what God says to him. He calls his name. Jacob, Jacob, he says, here I am. And God tells him in verse 3, do not be afraid. Afraid of what? You think Jacob is afraid to die? Do you think he's afraid of perhaps marauding bands coming? Do you think he's afraid that they won't be welcomed in Egypt? Maybe. But I think he's telling him, don't be afraid of forfeiting the covenant promises. If you leave the land, that doesn't mean that you're leaving me and my plans and my purposes behind you. You will not forfeit my promises. You will not forfeit my presence. Both of those concerns are laid to rest. Notice what he says. He says, for there in Egypt, even though you're not in Canaan, he says, I will make you into a great nation. It's not what Jacob expected. He thought that this would happen in the land of Canaan. But God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation in a foreign land. And he says, I'll be with you in verse 4. I myself will go down with you to Egypt The promise of God's presence. That's what Jacob needed. God, just tell me that you're with me. Tell me that this is in line with your purposes, and I'll go. 
And he tells them that they're not going to be there forever. He says, and I will also bring you up again. Read the book of Exodus and you'll see how that comes to pass. A great nation will one day depart from Egypt and return to the land of Canaan. And he gives him a word of comfort as well. He says, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Jacob had long been afraid of a death that was marked by mourning. He says, you are bringing my gray hairs down in grief to the grave, to Sheol. But God says, no, you're going to die in peace and your beloved son Joseph himself will lay you to rest. This divine word from God to Jacob assures him of the covenant. It offers him great comfort. It promises his presence. And he says that I'm going to bring you back here one day and do everything that I promised I would do. Everything I said to Abraham. Everything I said to Isaac. Everything I've told you in times past. I have not forgotten those promises. So with Pharaoh's generous invitation, with Joseph's call, and with God's blessing, they go to Egypt. And then what happens next is Moses actually kind of breaks stride. He shifts from this narrative, from telling the story, and he gives us a very detailed record of all the people who came with Jacob. At this point, he takes great care to list everyone who traveled to Egypt because, for this reason, this is the record of God's covenant fulfillment. And God's promises are to this family, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their offspring. Remember that word offspring, that Hebrew word zerah, the, the seed, the descendants? That's been a theme all the way back since chapter 3. Remember when Adam and Eve fell, God promised them that through their descendants, through their seed, one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. Offspring is at the heart of what God is doing to fulfill his plans in the world. When God made the promises to Abraham, he says, I will give you many descendants, Zerah, offspring, that same word. It is through these descendants, through this family, that God would bring blessing, salvation, to all the families of the earth. And now here we see that God is taking great care of the descendants, the offspring, the Zerah of Jacob. This is the record of God's covenant fulfillment, making Jacob into Israel, making his 12 sons into 12 tribes. And it's interesting here because remember Abraham, he had actually two sons, didn't he? He had Ishmael as well as Isaac, but Ishmael was outside the covenant. Isaac had twins, Jacob and Esau, but the promise was for Jacob and not for Esau. Esau is outside the covenant. But with Jacob now, we see that all of his family belongs. All of Jacob's offspring are members of this covenant community. The number 70 that Moses tells us at the very end of this listing of people, this number 70 shows us not just that the family is growing, I mean, they're not yet quite as numerous as the stars in the sky, are they? I mean, you can count to 70. How many of you kids can count to 70? You can do that. How many of you kids can count all the pieces of sand at the beach? If you raise your hand, it means you haven't been to the beach yet, okay? There's too many to count. So God's promise isn't all the way fulfilled yet, but this number 70 shows us that they're well on their way. And this number 70 really signifies and pictures wholeness and perfection, that the family going to Egypt is the nation Israel in seed form. Their journey to a far land had been revealed to Abraham years earlier. Back in chapter 15, God had told Abraham this. He said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. He continues and tells Abraham, that they shall come back here, back to the land of Canaan, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
You see, this short genealogy offers us a historical foundation for the nation Israel. This is God doing everything he said he was going to do, and it highlights the covenant faithfulness of God to preserve his people from famine and to make them a great nation. Seventy people strong when they go in, but they will be a great multitude when they return. Well, the whole family, all, all of them, they have finally arrived in Egypt, and we see this beautiful reunion between Jacob and his son, starting in verse 28. We see that he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Parents, as you can imagine, uh, as we likely would as well. Verse 30, Israel said to Joseph, Here is the expression of a man finally at peace, finally experiencing comfort for all those years of grief and mourning. He says this, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. It's really a redemptive turn of events. I don't know if you picked up on this in verse 28, but who's the one who's leading the charge? Who's the one who's sort of the tour guide, ushering Jacob and his family to meet Joseph? It's Judah, isn't it? Judah was the one who had once plotted to get rid of him. And now he's the ringleader among the brothers who's actually facilitating the reunion. And when they meet, the emotions here are real. The reunion is sweet. Imagine Jacob seeing his long-lost son escorted by soldiers and servants clothed in rich Egyptian garments, all of this royal splendor. It must have been amazing. And although Jacob once despaired that he would go down to the grave in mourning, now he happily announces that he can die in peace because he's seen the face of his long-lost son. His tears of grief are replaced by tears of joy. This is God's grace. This is God's blessing. This is God bringing all his purposes and promises to fruition. Joseph then gives some instructions to his brothers. Verse 31, he says to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me and the men are shepherds for they've been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our, from your, from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. I think there's a lot of wisdom here in Joseph's coaching of his brothers. He says, make sure you tell Pharaoh when you meet him that you've always been shepherds, and that you brought all of your flocks and herds with you. You intend to, con- to continue being shepherds. Why does Joseph want them to emphasize that? Well, he knew that openly acknowledging their occupation and their plans to continue their occupation would help to assure everyone that Joseph wasn't trying to set up some rival dynasty. You know, someone that was going to come and infiltrate the political system of Egypt and take things over. They just wanted some land, a little plot, right? A little green corner so that they could keep doing their thing, keep raising their family. And Joseph also knew in his wisdom this would allow them to, con- to continue sort of an, an incubated, insular life, unmixed with Egyptian society and culture. If they were to dwell alone in their own place, they would not be in danger of losing their unique identity 
as the people of God. During their time in Canaan, there is that constant thread of intermarriage with the Canaanites, the, the false worship of the pagan gods creeping in and corrupting God's covenant people. They would sort of be in a silo here in Egypt and be able to, uh, to multiply there and to become a great nation without much interference. And that would set the stage for their massive deliverance. As Derek Kidner points out, this is the beginning of a phase of isolation where the family, thoroughly alien, could multiply without losing its identity. And it's the beginning also of eventual bondage and deliverance, which would produce a people that forever after knew itself redeemed as well as called. And again, you have to read the book of Exodus to get the rest of that story. But in all of this, as we see Joseph's family coming to be reunited with him in Egypt, we see God's promises moving forward, God's blessings being poured out on his people. But we also see God's promises kept in covenant blessing for the offspring of Abraham. Remember what God had told Abraham that he was going to bless him and that he would bless those who bless him. We see that there's an idea here of the way that God's people relate to the world, that there would be blessing in that for them and blessing in that relationship through them. God was going to bring blessing. We see here, first of all, that Pharaoh blesses Jacob's sons in verses 1 through 6. We won't read this in chapter 47, but Joseph comes and introduces his brothers to Pharaoh, and he welcomes them. And he doesn't just say they can live in Goshen. He says, give them the best of the land. He gives them the best place. And not only that, he says, are any of them, um, are, are these smart guys? Do they know what they're doing? Pick out some of the best, Joseph, and I want them to actually care for my flocks and my herds. Pharaoh gives them a promotion. It gives them a place of social prominence to oversee his own flocks and his own herds. What's happening here? God is blessing his people through Pharaoh. Pharaoh treats the people of God well and blesses them. But it's not just that Pharaoh blesses the family of Jacob. We also see on the flip side that Jacob and his family actually bless Pharaoh. God doesn't just bless the offspring of Abraham. He provides blessing through them. Look in verse 7. After Pharaoh puts Joseph's brothers in charge of his livestock, it says, Then Joseph brought Jacob, his father. He brings him in and stood him before Pharaoh. You get the idea here of a weak older man who needs help coming into the presence of this magnificent ruler over the most powerful nation in the world at the time. And then look at this amazing statement in verse 7. It's the opposite of what you expect. You expect the great Pharaoh to bless Jacob. But look what happens. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Can you believe that? This old man with this small little family from a land that's racked by famine, has walked into Egypt with his herds, his cows, his sheep, his goats, and he's come into the throne room of Pharaoh himself, and Jacob pronounces a blessing on this pagan king. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing. Jacob doesn't seem to be too impressed by Pharaoh, does he? He doesn't ask for Pharaoh's blessing. He offers him a blessing. Pharaoh shows honor to the father of Joseph and acknowledges his age. I know in our society, it's not polite to ask someone how old they are, right? That's not usually how you start off a conversation with someone who's got a little bit of gray going on. But look what Pharaoh says. Pharaoh said to Jacob in verse 8, how many are the days of the years of your life? This is a courtesy. He's showing him honor as an older man and as the father of Joseph, this person that Pharaoh deeply appreciates. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. 
Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. It's kind of surprising here. Um, 130 years doesn't seem few to me and perhaps to you. But think about Jacob's experience and what he knew. Abraham, his grandfather, lived to be 175. And Jacob, for a long time now, has been talking about his death. He feels like he's on death's doorstep at 130. His father Isaac lived to be 180. And when he says, evil have been the years of my life and few, I think we can understand the evil part. I mean, think about everything that Jacob's been through. All the way back to his childhood, he had great strife with his brother Esau. He had tricked him out of his birthright and the blessing, and Esau tried to kill him. So he had to flee and go to a distant land to be with people he'd never met. There, he housed with his uncle Laban. Laban didn't treat him well. There's manipulation and turmoil and struggle with his manipulative, manipulative father-in-law. He ended up in an unhappy marriage. His daughter Dinah was violated by the, the man Shechem. There was the violence of his vengeful sons as they slaughtered the men of Shechem. There's all the grief brought to his household as his sons had gotten rid of Joseph. Brought so much mourning into his life. He had lost Joseph over 20 years earlier, and that grief had taken its toll on him. He says, evil have been my years. But despite all of this, despite everything that Jacob has been through, he is still the bearer of the covenant promises. And although he needs help to stand before Pharaoh, because he had the blessing of God, even though he'd been through all those things, because he was the bearer of God's blessing, he is the one who is actually greater than Pharaoh. And he's in a position to offer Pharaoh blessing. And he blesses him again at the end of this conversation. Verse 10, just like in verse 7. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Pharaoh had been very good to Joseph and his family. And Jacob was happy to bless him. We see all God's promises coming true, right? I will bless those who bless you. And so Pharaoh receives the blessing of God through Jacob. Gordon Wenham points out, Jacob, who in his youth had cheated to obtain blessing, is now the source of blessing, not just to his family, but to all the families of the earth. God's promises are beginning to come true. This is the true fulfillment of God's word, but it's not the end of that promise. The Messiah that would one day come through Jacob would bring the ultimate blessing of salvation to all the families of the earth, not just the Egyptians, not just the Israelites, but to Gentiles like you and me. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, there is no greater blessing, even for a king, than to receive the love of God that is demonstrated through Jesus Christ. And that's the plan that God is at work fulfilling. Well, this blessing is not just the blessing of, of Jacob's word. We see this blessing uh, fleshed out in verses 13 through 26. We don't have time to read all this, but we see that God blesses Pharaoh and he blesses all the people of Egypt, that nation, through Joseph. Because what happens is that the famine continues and the people survive because of Joseph and because of his wisdom. They come to him and they say, we're out of food. And so he says, buy grain for me. I've been saving up over those seven years of plenty. When they run out, they come back again and say, we don't have any money. Here's our herds and here's, our, here's all of our flocks. Take those in exchange. And so 
Everything now belongs to Pharaoh. They come back a third time. They're out of food, and they say, what good is it to us to have all this land and our freedom if we're going to die? So they actually mortgage themselves and their property. But notice what they say. They don't see Joseph as an economic opportunist. If you look, let's see, I believe it's in verse 25. They said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. Because of Joseph's wisdom, he, he could have let many of those people die, but instead he offers them a chance of survival. And he provides for all the people of Egypt. And they see Joseph literally as their savior. You have saved our lives. But he doesn't just benefit the people. He also benefits Pharaoh. Because in all of this, Pharaoh's wealth and his power is increased. And literally, the government is very much centralized and and expanded. As Pharaoh now owns everything in Egypt, great power and success have come to Pharaoh. And great blessing, life, and provision have come to the people. All through this man named Joseph. God said, I will bless those who bless you. They had treated, Pharaoh had treated Joseph well, and he reaps the benefit of that, both he and his nation. So all these promises are coming true. The people had been waiting. God was doing what he had said. So how does this affect Joseph and Jacob? And here's where it becomes very practical for us as well. I know we've been going through a lot of content. It's a long story. But in this final section, here's what I want to draw your attention to, that promises made in faith-filled expectation. That, that, that's what happens. As, as, as Jacob and Joseph see everything that God is doing, promises kept, it actually motivates Jacob to ask Joseph to make a promise. And he asks him to make this promise because Jacob is filled with expectation and confidence that God's not done doing what he said he would do. Look with me in verse 27. It says, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, summary statement there, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. God's doing what he said. He's blessing his people. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of the bed. Verse 27 says, look at everything that God has done. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt. They were fruitful. They multiplied greatly as God had commanded them. And all of this motivates Jacob to make a request. Jacob goes to Joseph and he says, I want you to swear an oath to me. And and this oath, even the form of it is significant. He says, place your hand under my thigh like Abraham had done before him. Jacob is asking Joseph to swear By the sign of the covenant, that's circumcision, right? And to swear on the source of covenant and and the substance of covenant blessing, on this offspring, this idea of descendants. He says, I want you to swear on all that is holy to us, that you will not bury me here, but that you will bury me in the land of Canaan, back where we belong. You see, Jacob is seeking the fullness of what God had promised. He had seen already so much that God had done, and that made him desire and long even more 
for the finality of it. He said, I know the land, I know we had to leave, but that's where we belong. Don't bury me here. Don't put roots down here because that's where we belong back home. We've seen this theme before. Remember, Abraham stepped out in faith and purchased land to bury his wife, Sarah. He bought that cave in that field at Machpelah because he said this is the place where future generations will honor their ancestors. They'll remember here our faith that this is the land God promised to give us. We're not leaving. We're not going anywhere. Isaac had been buried there as well, and Jacob knew that that's where his bones belonged because that's where their family would one day possess the land and become a great nation. You see, what's happened here is that Jacob's faith has been strengthened and his covenant expectations have been intensified. If God has done all this, then what remains? What remains is to inherit the land. Although they had it good in Egypt, I mean, they had everything they wanted. They had a big connection with people in high places. But they didn't want to grow too comfortable in Egypt. Jacob's heart was set on the fulfillment of God's promise of inheriting the land. And his insistence on burial back there keeps the focus on the future fulfillment of God's promise. Not just for him, but for Joseph. He said, Joseph, when I'm dead and gone, I want you guys to keep focused on what God still has yet to do. The fulfillment of his covenant promises. Well, Jacob submits to God's plan as well. And notice, after he asks Joseph to swear, notice what Israel does. The very final phrase here. It says, Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of the bed. Jacob finally bows to Joseph. Remember the two dreams? That the sheaves would bow down to Joseph, but also that the sun, moon, and stars, signifying his whole family, would bow to him. We've seen Joseph's brothers bow, haven't we? First, the the, the ten that came without Benjamin. They bowed on that first journey to Egypt. And then the second time, Benjamin came with them, and the eleven brothers bowed, but there was still something that was missing, his father. Jacob had once rebuked his son for saying, you really think that I will bow down to you? He rebuked him for having those dreams in his youth. But now we see that Jacob is not just expecting God's plan to come to pass. He himself is embracing it and submitting himself to it. Submitting himself to it. As he looks for God to keep his promises, he willingly lends himself to that process. He bows to Joseph. He submits to God's plan as he sets his hope on God's promise. Gordon Wenham points out that Jacob in life, too often the cunning schemer, who trusted his own wiliness to achieve his ends, now in the face of death shows that his ultimate hope, his ultimate hope is in the promise of God. This ultimate hope is expressed both in his posture and in the promise that he demands from Joseph, that Jacob is looking to things that are yet unseen. And his faith has been strengthened by all that has gone on before. I want you to consider this morning the significance of this story for the original audience. Do you remember who Genesis was originally written to? Moses wrote this this book for the people of Israel as they left Egypt. No longer just 70, a couple million people. They had been slaves for over 400 years in that land. Had God forgotten them? Could they really trust God to give them the land of Canaan, all of these well-fortified cities and these highly armed and trained armies? Yes, God always keeps his promises. 
And this has always been God's plan from day one. They, those people needed to know how they ended up in Egypt. And they needed to see that it was God's doing. They weren't slaves in Egypt because God had forgotten them. They were slaves in Egypt because God had brought them there. He had made them great. And now he would bring them out and give them the land of Canaan. They would carry the bones of Jacob and Joseph with them and lay them to rest in that place. They needed their faith to be strengthened by the record of God's covenant faithfulness, by his sovereign grace. They would need that faith to sustain them through the wilderness wanderings and into the conquest of Canaan. But it's not just that audience that needed this truth, that God is faithful and that we should seek the fulfillment of his promises. We need that too, don't we? We need to remember that our God is a God who always does what he says he will do. Always. Sometimes it takes 400 years, right? But we can wait on him, confident that he will do everything he has said he is going to do. When we recognize God's faithfulness in the past, even when we look in our own lives, not just the promises of Scripture, but consider God's provision for you. Consider how God has met your needs. Consider how he has protected you, how he's grown you, how he's changed you, how he's met your needs. When we consider God's faithfulness in the past and in the present, that should have an impact upon us, shouldn't it? It should intensify our desire for and our confidence in the fulfillment of God's promises in the future. But you know what often keeps our faith weak? You know what often causes us to doubt? It makes it difficult for us to trust that God will do what he said when everything looks kind of crazy on its face what happens is that we're too often blind to the working of God. We don't step back and look at things and say, God has done all of this. We tend to get the blinders on, and we, we think that it really all depends on us, and we only see what's in front of us. We lack the eternal perspective to recognize who it is who's in charge and what he's been doing throughout time. You see, Joseph knew that God had done all this, didn't he? He knew that. Jacob knew this as well. Jacob recognized as he bowed to his son Joseph and as he asked him to promise to bury him in Canaan, he knew that God was at work in all this. God had revealed that to him at Beersheba. You know what? If Joseph didn't realize that God was doing all this, how might Joseph have acted differently? Well, he might have wanted to get revenge, right, on his brothers. If he couldn't say that God sent me before you to preserve life, if he couldn't say you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, if he didn't realize the hand of God that was at work, he might have acted much differently than he did, right? What about Jacob? If Jacob didn't realize God's hand in all of this, well, he might have settled comfortably in Egypt. He might have forgotten their unique identity as the people of God. He might have forgotten their promised destiny of inheriting the land of Canaan. You see, the fact that these two men, Jacob and Joseph, recognized the hand of God and all that had happened, it's both evidence of their faith, and on the other hand, it actually serves to strengthen their faith. If you have eyes of faith, you will see the hand of God at work. And here's the beautiful thing. When you see the hand of God at work, you know what it does? It strengthens your faith. It strengthens your faith. Let me ask you, do you look at life through the eyes of faith? Do you look for the hand of God? Do you recognize his hand of providence in all that you've been through, everything you experience? 
Are your hopes and your expectations, are your plans and your goals, are they shaped by your desires or by the plan of God, by his word, the roadmap that he has laid out for us in scripture? Does that orient your view and your perspective? You see, Jacob and Joseph, they knew their place in God's story, didn't they? Do we know ours? Do you understand your role in God's plan? His plan for your life, his plan for your family, his plan for your church, his plan for your community, his plan for his kingdom. We need to understand our place in God's program and embrace it the way that both Jacob and Joseph did. You see, too often we want God to use his power to serve our purposes, don't we? God, here's what I want. God, here's what I need. God, here's what I would like. God, here's what I have planned. Will you sign off on this and make it happen? We know that God is powerful and sometimes we're frustrated because it seems like he's not doing anything. No, God is doing a lot. But he's not at work busy fulfilling our plans and our purposes, is he? He's accomplishing his. We must see through eyes of faith to see what God is doing. And if you see that, the proper response is to embrace it the way that Jacob and Joseph did. And to orient your life around hope and confidence and a desire to see those things brought to pass. Our, con- our confidence in God's promise And our eager expectation for it, that should energize our faith all the way to the end. It did for Jacob, didn't it? All the way to his deathbed. He finished well. Jacob had his ups and downs, but he burned out brightly at the end, full of hope, full of faith. That's how I want my story to end. That's how I want your stories to end as well. Full of faith, finishing strong all the way at the end. Many of us have had our ups and downs in the past. I mean, Jacob had plenty of skeletons in his closet, didn't he? But we see God's grace preserving him to the end. We see God's faithfulness, not letting him go. And we see the way he finished, full of faith in the promise of God. When we see God's promises fulfilled, it ought to increase our faith in the future promises of God. And what are those promises? They're promises that are assured to us by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That our sins can be forgiven through faith in Jesus that we will be changed to become like our Savior, that one day our bodies will be raised up from the ground and made new, and that God is going to make this whole world new, a new heaven and a new earth, that Jesus will reign in righteousness, and we will dwell with our Savior face to face, enjoying his glory and worshiping him for all of eternity. Do you believe that? You can say yes. Yeah, that's really good news. And you know what? You're going to need that good news when you have to bury people you love, when you don't know where the next paycheck's coming from. It's our faith in God's promises that's so essential to experience God's grace and his faithfulness. Try him. He's good for it. All you have to do is read this book and you'll see time and time and time again that God always does what he says. And that's why, as Hebrews says, we have this anchor for our soul, don't we? It's an anchor. If you're getting thrown around by the storms of life, anchor your faith in the, in, in the character of our God because this is who he is. And let's give ourselves 
in obedience and submission to his purposes. Not fighting for our plans, but submitting to his. This should energize our obedience, strengthen our confident expectation that God will do as he has said for his glory, for our good, and for our joy. God, as we read through these amazing stories in the Old Testament, we're struck by the power of your providence, that you work all things together, as Paul tells us, for good. Even the bad things that happen to Joseph. Even the sin and the wickedness of Jacob's sons. Even Jacob, with all of his stumblings and failings, becomes Israel, the father of a great nation. And Lord, we see that through these imperfect people, you brought your perfect son, And it's in your son, Jesus, that we see all of your promises fulfilled. We've seen many of them already. We've experienced, many of us in this room, the forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of the Spirit. We've seen our lives changed. We've seen your hands of provision and protection. But Lord, there are promises yet unfulfilled that we long to see. We long to see your church built. You said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God, we want to see that. Lord, you promised that you would come and judge the earth in righteousness. That you would do away with the wicked and that you would bring reward and comfort and peace to your saints who are suffering. Lord, we want to see that. You promised that you would come and do away with death. That you would destroy it. That you would destroy Satan, our enemy. That you would make all things new. Lord, we want to see that. We long to see you fulfill those promises. And God, you've given us every reason to fully expect that you will do exactly as you have said. Lord, give us a strong faith. And I pray that you would help us this morning, God, to submit our lives to your purposes. Help us to orient our plans around yours, to trust in your promises, and to give ourselves to what you are doing in your world. Lord, if there's any in here this morning... I'm always aware that there may be some who have not fully submitted their lives to you. Perhaps they are still living for their kingdom, for their plans, for their purposes. They've not yet confessed their sins and received the gift of salvation. I pray that they would come to Jesus and become part of this kingdom that you are building, to become part of this family that you are growing, to be added to your church. We pray that you would bring about your miracle of salvation in the lives of those who are still far from you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.